welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. I have a two-part message uh, this Sunday and next, as I often do at the turn of the year, to contemplate living with more passion for Christ as the year approaches. And we're going to go to a, uh, a wonderful and mysterious and familiar text to so many, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Today, verse 12, next Sunday, verse 13, and uh, the, the entire Treatment of Scripture comes under the heading keys to a life of spiritual impact. So here with me, as we enter another year of having been under the hearing of the Word of God for over 50 years now, amen, hear the the Word of God with me. Paul writing, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is God's life-changing word. May he have his way with it in our hearts this morning. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as has already been mentioned, it is the turn of another year, and uh, my personal habit for many years has been to take uh, some extended time right around this time to examine my life, to consider uh, the will of God for my life, and to contemplate what God has, has shown forth through me in the last year. And so uh, I tend to study scripture that way. I go back to the texts that have become classics for me. I go back to uh, passages that have marked me. And this is certainly one that I can say over the 40 plus years of my Christian life has marked me, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I've studied it for that length of time and I still cannot tell you with full confidence all that it teaches. This is a goldmine. And uh, it's, it's, filled, it's filled with fundamental truth about the life of faith, but it also is filled with mystery. It, it talks about the interconnection between God's work in your life and your working out of obedience. And no one, no matter how much they tell you they studied, can fully explain that mysterious connection of God working his will out as you work for him. So I decided to put uh, the, the thinking that I've had over the years into a, just a two-part little mini-series, if you will, on this classic text. It's helped me clarify my life, and I pray that it will help you as a believer clarify your life in the year to come, should the Lord tarry. We need to clarify our lives before our lives clarify us. You can get to a certain tipping point in your life, and it, it happens at midlife or a little thereafter, in which you're looking at less life ahead and more life behind. And you've accumulated decisions and actions and consequences or achievements, 
and you've put some distance behind you of who and what you're living for. And so there's, there comes a certain point where your past begins to clarify who you decided to be, what you decided to do, how you decided to live, and what kind of an impact you're going to leave. My hope for you is that uh, you'll think about your, clarifying your life intently so that you do it purposefully. An unintentional life will eventually clarify you. That's not the way you want it to be. You need to clarify the life that you will live until the Lord comes for you. If you don't and your life clarifies you, you may be very, very unhappy with the portrait of you that you leave behind. Let me ask you a trivia question. What individual, who, who has stolen the most in human history? I'll put it that way. Who has stolen the most in human history? And I kind of gave it away already, but that exempts national governments. We're not talking about <laughs> national governments today. I'm just talking about individuals. What individual, according to the record books, has stolen the most? Well, his name was Bernard Madoff. Bernard Madoff. Bernie Madoff made off with a number so great and he stole in so many different ways from so many different people over so many different years the auditors themselves to this day can't quite tell you how much he stole from his investors the conservative estimate is 20 billion yes with a b taken from people everyday people mom and pop people kitchen table pinching pennies people 20 billion dollars and he goes down in history as history's greatest thief. It's interesting, Bernard Madoff didn't need the money. You may not know his story, but he was successful very early in his life as an investor. He was very creative, and his company developed a software that eventually became what we now know as the NASDAQ. So he was well into the money and well into fame and notoriety early in his career. He didn't need the money, but there was one thing that Bernie Madoff did need, and that was more. He was a living demonstration of that old, the old story when somebody asked uh, uh, Rockefeller, the great millionaire of the 1800s, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And old Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Bernie Madoff had that disease. But not only was the money something he wanted, he wanted to be adored. He wanted to be at the top of the heap of investment advisors. And so he did whatever he had to to get there, which meant stealing from others and creating false amounts in the accounts in the great Ponzi scheme. And of course, it brought him down and it ruined the lives of thousands of people. I, I can't think of a greater example of an unwisely invested life. Here's a man that thought he knew all about investing, and yet his, his life was the most unwisely invested life you can imagine. His life clarified him because he never passed the character test. Now, all of us face the same kind of test. Our arena may not be as big as Bernie Madoff's was, but all of us can get trapped in the deception that life is more about making an impression or an imp on people versus an impact for God. He was all wrapped up in the whole idea of making an impression on others, but really, he was created by God, as we sang already, to bring glory to the Savior that never entered his life. 
The worst life failure in terms of a person of faith is similar. I can think of no worse life failure than a Christian who lived their entire life focused on what they could get or what they could do and not on who God wanted them to be. Let me repeat that. I can think of no greater failure for a Christian than living all your life for what you could do or what you could get and not on who Jesus Christ created you to be. Because you see, there is going to be a great analysis of the life of every believer. We are saved by grace through faith. The penalty of sin has been taken away from us. But we will stand before what's called the great Bema seat after we go to heaven. And it is a, it is a seat in which the judge of the universe will, will some, in some supernatural way be able to evaluate every moment and deed of our Christian life. And he will evaluate everything we did and how we lived our lives. Your life will be fully clarified before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says that believers will receive reward for all that they allowed God to do through their life for his glory, or they will experience the loss of reward for everything they did in their Christian life for their own goals, in their own strength, for their own purposes. It's, it's not the time to see that you didn't clarify your life because your life will be over. If you lived for the what instead of the who, you're going to have a loss of reward in heaven. I just, I just can't put it any more bluntly than that at the Bema seat. You see, the Lord, the, the scripture says, he will reward what is good and what is worthless he will not reward. The word worthless there is literally what the word implies. The things that you live for, that when God looks at him, he would say at the end of, of time, you know, that really didn't matter to me. And so he doesn't reward what didn't matter to him. But all that did matter to him does receive reward. What a time to hear from God when he takes a look at everything you built in your life. What a time to hear from God, in a sense, saying, nice ladder, leaning on the wrong wall. You don't want to be there. And so I want to go into this classic text in which Paul, the man who lived with passion, talked about letting God work out the life he wanted in you, about how to live an eternally invested life. I looked at it in detail, and believe it or not, in these two verses, I found seven keys to a life of spiritual impact. I'm going to go over four of them today and then three next week uh, to, to finish my thoughts. Now, I know I run a little bit of a risk uh, when I talk about keys, because if you've been around Christian teaching long enough, you know that pastors, uh, well, they, they tend to overuse that word. Um, one of my favorite cartoons is, is, is the image of a pastor uh, on the platform with the pulpit, and he's got a big old key in his hand. And he says, here's another key to the Christian life. And he's getting ready to throw it out into the congregation. And then in the next panel, you see this poor old boy sitting in the pew, buried in keys. <laughs> Yeah, we've all been there, right? And I don't do this very often. You can probably count on one hand in the years that I've been here how often I've entitled a message, Keys Of. But I couldn't think of any other way to do it, and I was tired. So, um, <laughs> seven keys. As trivial as that may sound, though, they're very important. So I looked at verses 12 and 13, and I saw seven keys or seven principles, if you want to use that word, that Paul seems to indicate here are part of a life that eternally matters. The first is the key of example. 
And often, when you take a look at a Bible text, you can learn a lot about what it's saying by looking at its context, where it fits in the flow of thought of the writer. And this key comes from the context. You take a look at this, and in verse 12 of Philippians 2, you can see, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So we take a look at that, and the first word, therefore, you often, some of you can complete this for me. When you see therefore in your Bible, you always ask the question, what's the therefore? Well, some of you guys are awesome. You're going to have a great year, I'll tell you right now. Yeah, you want to take a look at why, where what he's talking about specifically in this verse fits into the verses that preceded it. What's the line of thought? What's the flow of the argument? Therefore, in the Greek language, it's a very small word. It's a connective particle, and it's used to draw a conclusion from what was said previously. So we want to take a look at what was said previously. In your Bible, you can see that beginning really at verse 5 and going all the way through verse 11, you can see that what preceded this, this statement of therefore is a portrait, very simply, of the greatest human life ever lived. Go back in your Bible in Philippians 2. In fact, you can go back to Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who? Now, it describes Jesus. Verse 5 says, live like him. Have this intent in your minds. Clarify your life and live it this way. How did he live it? Well, though he was in the form of God, this is verse 6, you can read along, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, existing from all eternity as God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but made himself nothing. He allowed himself to experience the incarnation. God became man. Now you have the God-man, an amazing fact of eternal history. He, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the hallways of heaven and all the prerogatives of expressing all of his power and receiving all of that glory, he set aside the prerogative of exercising all that. He didn't lose that identity. He is still God. He always has been and always will be. But God became man and accepted the limitations of living in the human sphere under human suffering. And he accepted the obedience that God wanted from him. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient, being found, verse 8, in human form, to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humbling life of Christ. That's the mindset he wanted them to have. This is how Christ glorified the Father. This is who the Father wanted him to be and what he wanted him to do. In the same sense, you need to submit to God's call on your life. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him at resurrection day and ascension day and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that when Jesus strode back into the heavenly throne room, oh, what a mighty time of glory and celebration there was. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's the key. Christ lived for the glory of God the Father. Basically here he's saying, and connects it right in the next breath, therefore, my, my beloved, 
Do the same thing. Obey in the same way. Do you see the connection? That's what it's there for. (laughs) The key of example. Who is the greatest example of the most intentional life ever lived? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived as a servant. Notice in that text that I read to you, not as the master of his own fate, not as the designer of his own desires. When I was in high school, I was a, a committed atheist, even at that young an age, was an opponent of Christians, and I exalted the life of secular humanism and atheism. And you know, in, in, your, in your high school yearbook, when you get to put a little phrase, maybe you, maybe you don't do it now, but back then you got to put a, a phrase or a, a verse from a song or whatever to, to characterize your beliefs. And some people would, would put the latest lyrics from the Rolling Stones or whatever, or, or Party On or whatever. And I, mine was a quote from Tennyson. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's next to my, my picture in my high school yearbook. That's how committed I was to the atheistic, humanistic, human-centered, I am the master of my world belief system. Well, <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And he was the master of the world. So you see the the change in mindset and understanding. He became obedient. I was committed to achieving in my younger years. Jesus Christ, the master of all power and authority, became obedient to the point of death out of a sacrificial love for those he was coming to save. My life led to nothing but shame and brokenness. Thank God, God used it to lead me to Jesus as my Savior. Christ's life led him back into the throne room and in verse 11 says he received the full glory of God the Father. Which life was well lived? His, of course. So let me put this into a principle for you, the key of example. And by the way, each of these seven keys, I'll give you a little phrase. To me, this is teaching us to remember that the greatest example of a perfectly invested life is Jesus. If you're thinking about what kind of life to live this next year, if you're, if you're taking a look back and you're getting close to that tipping point and you're wondering, how is my life clarifying itself already without even me thinking about it? Take a look at the road you've traveled. How closely does it match up the perfectly invested life of Jesus Christ? If it doesn't match up too well, it means you've done what I've done at many times in my life. I've succumbed to false patterns of investing my life. Patterns that look like they made sense. Patterns that look like they would pay off. Patterns that look like they fit into my plans, my dreams, my agendas. I even sprinkled a little uh, coating of Christianese on them to try and justify them. But you know there are false patterns that would lead you to invest your life unwisely and they will tempt you in every aspect of your life this year. Professionally, you may be tempted into the workaholic, obsessive, power-dominating, neck-stepping kind of life that your corporate culture demands that you give it in order to get where you want to go. My friend, there is someone else whom you serve. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Will you take the risks of living according to his value system this year and and resisting that maniacal corporate culture that wants to burn you out on the way to building itself up? Will you trust him for your success in that culture and yet still answer his call as opposed to being dominated by that call? 
That's a tough one. I've been in the marketplace as well as in the ministry, and I understand what it's like when the corporate culture calls you to almost break your life in order to to go forward. But that's uh, that's a false pattern. Financially, everybody is going to be under increased strain this year because the, the financial calculus of Western society has changed. You all know this. Everything costs more. Pay raises don't go very far. All the, the, the larger factors of, of an easier prosperity in our society are changing, at least for a lot of us. What are you going to be tempted to do? Live an imbalanced life where you're chasing after greater for natural reward or security, but you're beginning to compromise the will of God. What will you do? Will you trust him for your security or will you imbalance your life and maybe create unhealthy patterns for your family or deny him a, a place of ministry in your life because you've got to take that time back and become financially secure? How much can that get into your mindset? I know it's how hard it is. Or maybe just the temptations of lifestyle around you when the neighborhood changes and everybody's driving a new car into the driveway and you're not. You know, it it can be something as silly and simple as that. And yet you tip your values over to stay up with things. It's all deceptive, my friend. I, I guess this is my Sunday for favorite church stories. One of my other favorite illustrations is a story I heard many years ago. There's a store named Tiffany's. How many are familiar with it? I'm going to ask you how many have shopped there. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think it still exists in New York City. It, it, it was the highest end store, department store. In, in New York. Some of you are nodding. Wow, you really been, have been there um, in, in New York City. And the story goes that many years ago, they had a break-in. It was an overnight break-in. And the thief did not take anything. All he did was he spent all night long switching the price tags <laughs> on stuff at Tiffany's. $20,000 chandelier, he took that and put it on a toaster. <laughs> and then he took a, a, a hat rack for 50 bucks and put that on the chandelier. And so he switched all the price tags and then snuck back out of the store again. And in the, in the morning, nobody thought to look at this from the store's management perspective, but all the customers flowed in. And of course, you know, there's a, there's a buyer's right, right? If it's marked that way, that's what you pay, right? And so pretty soon the counters were flooded with these people were saying, I will take that chandelier for 50 bucks. It was chaos. Well, you know what? The the devil can do that. He can sweep into your life and he can very subtly start switching the price tags and exchanging the value of of issues in your life and you begin to minimize what God has said is going to give you a rich and rewarding life and you can start chasing after stuff where where the enemy has subtly switched the price tags. It can happen to any of us. So let me ask you, focus on God's values this year. So let me ask you a practical question. How much are you going to gaze at his patterns this year? The world is already committed overtime and in our digital age, 24-7, shifting you into these financial and these professional and these lifestyle passions. You're going to have to be intentional to, to wipe the screen clear and get into understanding what God wants for your future, for your year. How are you going to do it? 
How are you going to get into the scripture this year in such a way that all the digital demands in your world don't overcome it? How are you going to to build in your life Christian books that that are written by people that have won the battle, that are farther along, that are wisely investing their lives? How are you going to let audio material move into your world? Some of my best friends, basically that's how they learn. I don't, but that's how they do. Well, get into it then, but get into the right courses of information moving through your new mind in Christ. How are you going to build relationships with brothers and sisters that will draw you in the right direction instead of some of the toxic relationships that have been harming you in the wrong direction? Maybe it's time to start getting intentional this year about creating relationships of people whose lives are clarifying in the right way. Take a look at who you're with, what they're doing. And maybe this is a time for you to get involved in a ministry. Listen, for no other reason other than it keeps you accountable. Why do ministry? You know, one of the reasons I've done ministry all my life is because it forces me to make my Christianity public. I have to be around people and I have to be counted on. That keeps me disciplined. It keeps me from going in godless directions. You want to go into godlessness? Live alone. Separate yourself from anybody having to depend upon you as a Christian. You'll spiral into the darkness so fast. Don't do it. The key of example, take a look at the perfect, perfectly invested life of Jesus Christ and know that it resulted in glory. Here's the second. Go back to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, in light of the greatest life ever lived, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. This is what I would call the key of vision. And again, it's kind of taken out of the flow of the text and the context of how all this started. You see, many people today tell me they would have lived a more effective Christian life if they'd had somebody disciple them. Many people tell me who get past the tipping point and now they've got less life ahead and most life behind and they they wish they could make this up. I, I wish I'd had a better pastor. Or if it wasn't for the person that I married, constantly pulling me away from what I really ought to have done. But you know, I, I had to stay in the marriage. If it wasn't for the grief that my children have cost me over the later years of my life. If it wasn't for the job that I had to be in that kept me away from certain things that I think would have been healthier for me. I meet so many of us, we, we, we home grow our excuses. But really, what part of what Paul is going to say here is that The word of God and the spirit of God plus your life can equal a work of God. You don't have to depend on others to grow is is the point under all this. He kind of goes against the grain of people always saying, well, I could have done this if so-and-so had helped me or if I had a mentor. That's the latest phrase. if If I had a mentor, I probably would have been able to do more. Granted, that's probably true, but it doesn't mean you couldn't have done anything. Not necessarily. Where do I get this? Well, take a look at this. And again, this is a little bit from context. 
He says, as you have always obeyed, he's writing to the church at Philippi, by the way, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul was saying, listen, you guys had a great beginning as a church, and I want you to have a greater going on, even though I'm not with you. Hang on, let me explain the story. The Philippian church, the Philippians to whom Paul was writing this letter, 10 years before met Jesus. They had a great start, but a short start. Paul was waiting on God's leading, and God led him to this this colony of Philippi, which was on the mainland of Europe. And God expanded the gospel through a vision that he gave Paul. In Acts chapter 16, you can read about it. Paul goes to this town, begins to preach the gospel. He sees a woman named Lydia who had a Jewish background but was also a Roman. She gets converted. She's a person of influence. Many people around her life. She brings them under the hearing of Paul, brings them as guests to church. They hear the gospel. They're revolutionized. Pretty soon, the gospel starts spreading. They meet in Lydia's large house and Dozens and dozens of people get saved over a few weeks of time, and a church is born. And of course, whenever a church started, Satan builds a chapel next door. And what did he do? He brought all kinds of angry people who were threatened from the Jewish community, and they created a riot. And then the secular community was threatened because their economics were threatened by all these people coming to faith. A giant riot happens, and Paul and Silas end up in jail within a few days. The great story behind that where they lead the jailer to Christ and, and God rescues them and, and kind of blows all the jail doors off through an earthquake. It's a fantastic story. But the believers know that Paul's life is in danger. And after only a few weeks in Philippi, they, they, they say, you got to get out of here. Or they're going to take your life. We'll go on without you. And so a great start, but a short start. He was only there a few weeks. So they come into a, into a future and they have to be their own church. Now, Paul left a guy named Luke behind, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. Dr. Luke was a recent convert. He wasn't a trained pastor, but he was the only guy that could stay behind. He stays behind and he starts to take the Philippian believers through the basic ABCs of Christianity. We don't know how long he stayed. Couldn't have been very long. And then the Philippians were on their own. Can you imagine that? A brand new church in a hostile city. But somehow they stayed, they stayed alive and they stayed together. Then they were pastored by lay volunteers. One of, God, one of them was a guy named Epaphroditus. And he had been their unpaid lay pastor for years. But that little church kept going all led by volunteers. So now you look at it. He says, my beloved church in Philippi, as you have always obeyed. Paul was, this is 10 years later now, Paul is writing to the Philippians. They've, they've hung in there for 10 years without a pastor, at least, at least without Paul. Just as you've always obeyed, you guys have hung in there for 10 years. So now, not only as in my presence, back in the first few weeks when I started you as a church, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Keep going, he said. Keep keep moving forward. Keep getting a vision for what God wants to do through you. Don't depend on others. Much more, in fact. Paul said, I believe God's not even started with you yet. So the Philippians, he was taking away the excuse of, well, we'll grow when Paul gets back. Or we'll deal with these problems when we get a pastor. 
Or we'll think about reaching the community once we get some training and once we have the right leadership or whatever it is. Paul says, I'm sorry, nothing on the table is like that. You obey even though I'm not there. Where was Paul, by the way? He was in a jail. Things weren't looking great for him. You see, the Word of God plus the Spirit of God in in the people of God will equally work with God. I like that algebra. The Word of God plus the Spirit of God multiplied by the people of God gives you a work of God. It's happening all over the planet. So take away the excuse that you can't do anything until you have the right people, the right leaders, the right pastor, the right mentor. Don't blame a lack of vision for your Christian life on what you don't have. I'm talking about you as an individual. You're saying, well, I don't have a lot of spiritual gifts, or I've never been discipled, or I'm just, I don't have anybody that's a great example for me, or I'm on my own, on my own a lot. I'm a widow now, you understand. No, don't blame a lack of vision for your Christian life on what you don't have. Here's, here, I told you I put them each in a principle. Here's the principle. Develop a vision for your spiritual growth that doesn't depend on others. This is a hard one for some people to swallow. Develop a vision for your spiritual growth that doesn't depend on others. You know, my favorite verse in Philippians 1, well, one of my favorite, the whole book is fantastic, but one of my favorite verses, Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who was the most important person in the church at Philippi? Wasn't a pastor. Wasn't a board member. It was the Lord Jesus indwelling the people. What's the day of Jesus Christ in this verse? It's the day you go meet Jesus. He was saying, listen, Jesus Christ is in you and he is committed to you all the way until the moment when you see him. So you're never fully alone as a believer. So the key of vision, develop a vision for your spiritual growth that doesn't depend on others. Two more and we're done for today. Three, if you go back to Philippians 2.12, is the key of integrity. Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, now he gets to the first command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the key of integrity. How do I get that out of it? Well, first of all, some people will look at this text who have been Christians a while and who have been well taught about salvation by grace through faith, and they might say, oh, I've got a little problem with this text, you know, uh-oh. That looks a lot like work salvation. Work out your own salvation. They might say, no, my, my Bible's contradicting everything I've been taught. Hang, hang on, that's not what it's teaching. because The Bible is not going to contradict itself. No, we are saved by grace through faith. That's important that you understand that, particularly as a young Christian. You're not saved by the works you bring to God. You're saved by a work God brought to you, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on that great cross. Many texts teach it. Ephesians chapter 2 is a classic. For by grace, God's free gift and the unmerited favor of God, for by grace you have been saved, accomplished work of God through faith. Did you have to earn it? 
Did you have to achieve it? Did you have to merit it? No, you simply believed. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works. So that no one may boast. So the Bible teaches very clearly that you are saved by grace through faith. Romans chapter 3 is another place that talks about this in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by what? His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. I could go on and on, but I've proven the biblical point. We are saved by grace through faith. Your works have nothing to do with with you being saved. Now, another way to look at this is you go back to Philippians 2. You've got to solve the question, well, what is he talking about there, about working out your own salvation then? Well, it may help for you to understand what theologians have called the three tenses of salvation. There are three tenses. It comes in three tenses, past, present, and future. Past tense, particularly in terms of what was borne out by these texts, there's a moment in time in which you were translated out of darkness and and into light, Colossians 1. There's a moment of time when you're born again and you go from death to life. You were saved from the penalty of your sin. That's known as justification. That's the past tense. It cannot be altered or undone. But there is a present tense in which you're being saved from the very power of sin. That's known as sanctification. That's what's being talked about here where you are working out in your life and you're defeating sin in your life and you're becoming more and more like Jesus, bringing him greater levels of glory and you're becoming more like Christ. That's an ongoing process of sanctification. Sanctify means to set someone more and more apart for the glory and obedience of Christ. That's the present tense. We're in the process of seeing that happen. It's an ongoing thing. So we were saved and we're being saved. And then there's finally what we would call the future tense of salvation, where we will ultimately one day, when we lose this body and the flesh that that comes with it and the power of sin that comes with it, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Totally. It will never trouble us again. That's future. That's called glorification. So you put it together, the past tense of salvation, justification by faith all the penalty of sin removed. The present tense of salvation is sanctification, where you're being delivered from the power of sin in your present life, and that's a growing experience until you meet Jesus. And then finally, when you die, you're saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification, where you're in his very presence, and sin is eradicated in terms of a presence in your life. Oh, I'm looking forward to that moment. So which of the three is he talking about here? He's talking about the second one. Yes, you're saved. You're you're born again. You're the property of God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Now, work out your own salvation. 
In other words, start living out in your outer life what is true, what you believe in your inner life. And there's the principle. Work at living in your outer life what you believe in your inner life. Start to work out obedience to Jesus. Start to work out being more like him in your character. Start to work out reshaping your life priorities to reflect the Bible instead of your society. Start to work out God's values of sacrificially loving your partner in your marriage. Start to work out your values in terms of not aggravating and being angry towards your kids, but building them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Start to work out what it means to be a sacrificially loving Christian friend instead of a hostile, demanding friend like you used to be. You start to switch in the will of God over the will of your own heart. That's called sanctification. That's what he's talking about here. Not only is in my presence, but much more my absence. Work out your own salvation. Start to show in your outer life what's already true in your inner life. Start to show out, work out in your temporal world what is eternally true in your spiritual world. When you have two things that match, that's called integrity. When two, two items come together and they perfectly match, you're living in integrity. When you're starting to live in your outer life what you profess in your inner life, you're living in integrity. That's the key. Working at living in your outer life what you believe in your inner life. Now, why am I stressing this so much? It's because so many Christians kind of live in a relaxed way in the past of salvation, and they do very little in, ter- in the present sa- area of salvation. And yet the Bible says that I am to run so that I may win. That's why I, was asked, I asked Kevin to read that in our hearing. 1 Corinthians 9, nobody taught the salvation of, of by grace through faith message better than the Apostle Paul, and yet at the same breath, he didn't relax in, 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 in the wonders of grace and not live for Jesus. He lived for Jesus out of gratitude for all that Jesus had done for him. And that's why he could say in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I, he ran with intention in his Christian life. He wanted his outer life to reflect his inner life. He was a lot more serious about it than many of us Christians are. Many of us Christians, we abuse the greatness of grace. And just don't don't get me wrong here. Not saying you work for your salvation. But a lot of us could stand to do a little bit more running and a little less relaxing. People believe in a lie. Here's how I put the lie. A lot of people believe that unusual Christian living is for unusual Christians. Unusual Christian living is for unusual Christians. When they look at all the calls of Paul to be committed, to live a sacrificial life, to live a gospel-driven life, to live an other-centered life, to live a life willing to endure suffering, to to live a life willing to take a little persecution in the teeth, to live a life devoted to the ministry of the church, to to make Jesus Christ and his kingdom a, a greater priority in your life than your own. We look at that as unusual Christian living, and you know, there are some people that can do that, but they're unusual Christians. I don't find that in my Bible. They just, that's a deception. Unusual Christian living is not just for unusual Christians. It's for every Christian. Living in integrity and living out who you are is what you're supposed to be about. This is why I think a lot of Christians 
have, have come to intellectual faith, but they haven't come to revolutionary, revolutionary faith. I hear so much today about believers, particularly younger in, in the age demographic, who surrender their, their belief at the drop of a hat as soon as it gets challenged in a classroom or on an online forum or through a series of videos that they get sent when some holes supposedly get poked in the authority of the Bible or the greatness of science overwhelms them when it comes to the creation story or the great debate about the, the real nature of what true love is or true gender equality might be or whatever you want to say. I meet so many younger Christians who are ready to surrender at the drop of a doubt. My friend, you will not make it if that's your mindset. Christians should be willing to battle, not just ready to surrender. The phrase that I hear a lot today from younger people who, who abandon their faith is, I just don't think I believe that stuff anymore. Well, you know what? You need to take a look at what becoming a Christian really means because it's not just deciding to believe stuff. It's not just a philosophical position you take. It's not just an historical opinion you hold. In my Amplified Bible, the word believe in Romans 10.9, which talks about coming to believe in Jesus as Savior, the Greek word believe, could be translated adhere to or rely on. When I came to Jesus Christ, I wasn't looking for a philosophical mentor. When I came to Jesus Christ, I wasn't looking for an historical phenomenon to, to hang my hat on. When I came to Jesus Christ, I wasn't looking for a philosophy that worked for me. When I came to Jesus Christ, I wasn't looking for something to give my life purpose. I was in desperate search of the living God. And I was in desperate search of a sufficient Savior for the wickedness in my life. And when I found him, I found everything. I came to rely, rely on him for my everything. And so when doubts came and attacks came against my faith, I was like Peter when Jesus said, do you too want to go? What did Jesus, what did Peter say to Jesus? To whom then shall I go? For you are the Savior of the world. Only you have the words of eternal life. Have you come to a philosophical figure or an intellectual mindset or an historical belief that can be pushed around the table? I came to the living Redeemer, and there is no other. You say, well, there's still so many doubts today that are being poked in the Christian worldview. You know what? You can poke doubts into anything. And I came to learn very early in my life as a Christian, we come by faith. The divine is never doubtless. Let me repeat that. Your faith doesn't stand or fall based on whether you can answer every question about it. It is a faith position. In the same way, I would remind you that the faith position of atheism was for me. 
or agnosticism or secularism or statism or whatever ism you want to live your life for. I can poke a thousand thumb holes in all of those too. No. I hold with integrity to the one that holds me. Therefore, I will work out what God worked in. The word work out there is interesting. It came from the silver mining culture in the Roman Empire. It meant to dig deep into what was already there in the heart of the earth and chop it out and bring it out into the light of day. My friend, you have Christ within you, the hope of glory. Now what he wants you to do is to take who he is and shape your life like him. Bring out some of the beauty of Jesus into the light of day and show it to the world. That's what he wants. And every one of us has the opportunity this year to do that and see him do it through us. The last is going to wrap it up. He says, you do this with fear and trembling. Some of you might say, wow, this is getting worse. Fear and trembling? I thought that that didn't have any place in the life of the Christian. Apparently it does. You say, I thought I was saved by grace. You are. You say, I thought there was no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Romans 8.1. You said, I, I thought I was at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Absolutely. I thought that in 1 John 4.18, it says for the Christian, true love drives out all fear in terms of the heart of my relationship with God. Absolutely. He is your loving, totally committed Savior. There we will never condemn you. You're under his blood and his, his sacrifice. Well, what's this mean then? This has nothing to do with fearing the loss of salvation. But it does say that in the spiritual life, there is something to be fearful of. In fact, truly fearful. The words here are pretty intense. Fear, we get our word phobos or phobia from it. Phobos in the Greek, but phobia. And it means a, a, a consuming fear. Trembling, we get, we get our word trembling or trauma from it. Traumas was the Greek. It, it means significant fear, significant trembling, something to truly be afraid of. There is something to be fearful of. And what is it? Let's, from my study, this is how I would put it into words. Fear of the damage that sin can cause in your life. Live out your own salvation. Live for Jesus Christ with fear and trembling that if you don't, there will be consequences. What do I mean by this? Righteousness exalts a people, the Bible says, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. Consequence. He gives you the opportunity this coming year to live out your salvation, to, to live for him in greater ways and to glorify God in your life. But he also gives you the opportunity to ignore that. And if you ignore that, you will have no other choice but to let sin take its place in your world. And that's something you ought to truly be afraid of because sin is a damaging thing. It's a damaging, damaging thing. David wrote in Psalm 119, 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. You say, wait a minute, David loved God. David was secure in his relationship with God. He wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And yet here he says, 
I'm afraid of your judgments. You better believe he was because he knew what Hebrews 12 would later say, that if you're a child of God, he will chasten you when you wander into sin. He'll punish you. He'll chasten you to bring you back into into obedience. And David certainly tasted that, didn't he? You remember the Bathsheba story? And Uriah's murder? And Nathan's conviction? And David's agonies? Oh, David knew to be afraid of the judgments of God. You see, fear of the damage sin can cause in your life is a good thing. Being saved completely by grace does not mean being saved completely from consequences. Maybe you need to hear that. Being saved completely by grace does not mean being saved completely from consequences. Everything that God said about sin is true in the life of the believer as well as the unbeliever. So how do I put it into words as I close? Here's the principle. Develop a healthy fear of the consequences of sin. That's the fear and trembling. I th- you may differ, but that's what I think he's referring to there. And I can't think of anything that makes less sense to modern Christians because our Christian generation has been taught to fear absolutely nothing about God. We've been taught to fear absolutely nothing about him. And yet my Bible says that he takes my sin seriously. Years ago, I, write, I wrote down three failures that I want to fear. Departing from God's word. Dishonoring God's moral code. Or disregarding God's call to minister. I can think of a lot of mistakes to make in life. A lot of failures you might suffer through, but I'm praying I don't experience any of those So what kind of a year do you think you're going to have if I could ask that question? Now, before I started, what kind of a year do you think you're going to have you might have answered? Well, it depends. Depends how work really goes this year. (laughs) Some things I'm not sure about, some things that really need to change. Or it depends on our finances. We've really got to make some hard decisions I might have to pick up a second job. Depends on how our finances go. What kind of a year are you going to have? Well, it depends on whether my kids straighten out or my grandkids stop breaking my heart. Or it depends on the meeting I've got next week about what my specialist called me about and said he needs to see me. Well, my friend, those are influencers of what you will experience but the God inside of you is the key to who you will be. Remember I said, don't get what confused with who. All those things can change. But the one who dwells within you is the one that can shape you to be like him. And that's eternally impactful. David McKay said, the greatest battles of life are fought out daily in the silent chambers of the soul. How right he was. May the Lord enable us to hear him and let him have greater sway in our lives this year.